If you remember, we have come to the place where we have seen that all these, all the things we have been developing about modern thought comes from the basis of origin, and that everything rests at the problem of origin. And I would just urge this to you very, very strongly. As you enter any realm of thought, and especially any realm of real intellectual thought, that you understand that the way you get to the root of the thing is to go back to the beginning of the origin. And if you learn to do that, you will really learn to think much more profoundly. I just say in parentheses, it's a good way to answer questions, too, when people ask a question. Don't answer just the question in a vacuum. But if you have time, especially, uh, and if you're dealing with people who want profound answers, always go back a step and show them how your answer is not in a vacuum, but it's, it's in a structure. It's in a structure. We should always go back and put our answers in, a stru- in the structure and not just answer as though these things were isolated uh, in space. Now, what I said last time was that the, now we're going to turn and look at the Christian emphasis uh, of the Christian cosmogony. And this we, must, we really must have ground into our bones. The basic distinction between all that which we've been looking at in modern man's thinking, beginning with his rationalism, the distinction between that and Christianity rests essentially at the point of an origin. And the modern thinking and the Eastern thinking all begins with an impersonal origin. The Christian position begins with a personal origin. And everything different rests on this. The real difference is not at the point of salvation, but the real difference is at the point of creation. Now, of course, if we are unsaved, we need to accept Christ as our Savior for our salvation. I'm not minimizing this, as you will, you will, be, you will know. But what I am saying is that the point of the distinction of the two systems and where do they turn out begins not just as salvation. It doesn't begin basically in the area of soteriology. It begins in the area of theology. And this must be clearly in our thinking. Now, I do want to take time this morning to take time really to think, really to think of what is the Christian cosmogamy. Cosmogamy is the theory of beginning or the teaching concerning beginning. Cosmogamy. Cosmology is the, is the question of what is there. Cosmogamy is more profound. Cosmogamy is the question of beginnings that explains what is there, or the origin of what is there. Now let us recognize that from the biblical viewpoint, the beginning is historic. It's historic. In the sense that space and time, space plus, plus time, equals history. Space plus time equals history. And in this sense, at creation, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there is history. There is space plus time involved with it. It is the very very opposite of putting this up into the upper story. It's not in the upper story at all. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is in the lower story. In the sense that it's dealing with space and time. It's dealing with history. So the beginning from the biblical viewpoint is a real thing, is a real thing of history. Now we have then in the, the, we would think if somebody said what is the beginning, we respond in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you mean it one way, this is right. But you must realize from the biblical viewpoint in another way, this is wrong. Because there is something before the beginning. And this is really our distinctive. This is our exciting, really exciting basis for our answer. There is something before the beginning. For instance, in John 17, 
in John 17, verses 24 and 5, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That before the foundation of the world is one of the most exciting phrases in the Bible and for today's discussion, and incidentally should always have been. Because here is something before the foundation of the world. Here is something before Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but before that, before the foundation of the world, God the Father loved the Son. The fifth verse has the same emphasis, the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So here is something that is before the beginning. If by the beginning you mean the beginning of the universe as, it, as, it, as we know it, as the cosmos. Here is something that is before the beginning of the cosmos. It is before the phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before God created the heavens and the earth, God the Father loved the Son. And this, is the, this really gives us our, our answer to the whole modern problem. It is our cosmogamy which versus the heart of the, the fallacy of modern man's thinking, and that is a wrong cosmogamy. His cosmogamy begins with the impersonal. Our cosmogamy begins with the personal. And this is really the vast distinction between the two. Now the Bible keeps stressing the fact in various ways that there was something before the beginning. In Ephesians 1.4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Again, it's the emphasis there is something before the foundation of the world. We are chosen in him. Now, choice contains the concepts of thought and will. So in John we have God loved the Son before the creation of the world. Here we have a concept of thought and will exercised before the creation of the world. For, the, for your notes, I would add, though I will not read it, that 1 Peter 1, 18-20a emphasizes the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 18-20a emphasizes the same thing. In Titus, we have another emphasis. In the book of Titus, in the first chapter, in the second verse, Titus 1, 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, uh, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So there's something else that was before the beginning. And that is promises were made. To whom? Well, from the Father to the Son. Promises were made in the Trinity itself because there was no one else there at that time before the foundation of the world, uh, before the world began, to use the phrase here, uh, that, to make a promise to. There wasn't anybody else there to make a promise to, but the Trinity was there. And there, was, there were promises made. And incidentally, I'll give you another reference just for your notes of the same thing as Titus 1-2, and that's 2 Timothy 1-9. 2 Timothy 1-9 says it's the same thing. Now then, this raises a very real question as we approach this, and that is, when did history and time begin? When did history and time begin? Now, if we're speaking of the space-time continuum, the way men think of it now, especially since Einstein's formulation, then the space, then history, time and history what did not exist before the phrase in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, because that's what in the heavens and the earth is talking about. It is a space, it is the space-time continuum. So if you're taking the Einsteinian space-time continuum, that began with the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, if that's what you're talking about. But if we're thinking of the term history, in contrast to an eternal philosophic other, 
or a static eternal, then history did not begin at Genesis 1-1, but before. And we really must grind this into our bones. It's a very important distinction. The space-time continuum, as we think of the space-time continuum now, especially since Einstein, is what is involved in, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But if you're thinking of, uh, of an eternal philosophic other, or if you're thinking of a static eternal, this did not exist prior to in the beginning. Because before that, there was the Trinity, and there was love, and there was promises made, and there was thought, and there was will, prior to the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you have to choose a word, therefore. What word would you choose? If we, our word time has become difficult. Uh, because it's, uh, because the word time is now, uh, associated so closely in men's mind with a space-time continuum. Well, I would choose the word sequence. It's really a semantic decision. And maybe you don't like the word sequence and you'll think of a glowingly better word and then you must tell me what it is. Uh, but uh, sequence is the best word I have thought of at this, at this point. That from the biblical viewpoint, sequence did not begin at in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There was sequence before that. Now someone might quote that the book of Revelation says time shall be no more for the future but if, for those of you who have studied this you know that that's not the exegesis of it. It is that uh, it is that delay will be no more. So that that verse does not touch on time at all. It has nothing to do with a discussion of time. So now I'm being very very careful. Time, if you mean the space-time continuum, refers expressly to in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It is the heavens, you know, in the Hebrew. It's plural. It's not singular. It's not just heavens, but it's everything. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth includes the whole cosmos. It's the whole cosmos that is spoken of. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But there is, there is indicated in the Bible, it seems to me, a definite, a definite sequence prior to creation in the sense that you are not left in the Bible with merely a static, a static eternal. You're not left with a great unmoved mover sitting far off and, and static. You're not left with something static in the Bible. And you can see this, I think, in the Bible because after God created the space-time continuum, he acted into the space-time continuum. And before there was a space-time continuum, because it had no existence before, this was an absolute beginning out of nothing, because there was no space-time continuum before, even for God, there was no space-time continuum to act into until he had created it. Now, you can't take this too far because our mind boggles when we deal with, it, with the infinite God. But these things, it seems to me, are clear. But secondly, he not only acted into the space-time continuum, but once there were men on the earth, he spoke to men inside the space-time continuum. There was communication now to those made in his own image within the space-time continuum. And prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth and then the creation of man in his own image, there was no man there to speak to in the previously. So consequently, the Bible certainly indicates that there is a distinction to God. He is not just the unmoved mover. He is not just the eternal static. He is not the philosophic other. All, the, all modern theology is left with God as a philosophic other. What does that mean? What it means is he's completely different to ourselves in every, every way conceivable and unknowable. And unknow we not only don't know him, but he is unknowable to us. 
Well, no, I wouldn't want to bring that word in here. It's just that he's unknown and unknowable. So, now to us, he is not. And to us, he is not left merely as a static eternal or an eternal philosophic other. Now, this is not theoretical. It's not hair-splitting. It's not hair-splitting. Because what is involved is the reality of a personal God in all eternity. So what is involved in these things is the question of whether you have an impersonal beginning or whether you have a personal beginning. And so you have in the Christian position, therefore, what is involved in our cosmogamy is a personal God in all eternity in contrast to merely the philosophic other or the theoretical unmoved mover or the impersonal everything or the final God of Buddhism or our purely subjective thought projection. So for, the, for much modern man, God is merely the subjective thought projection. What is being and what is involved here is the crucial question of whether it is only a subjective thought projection or whether indeed there has been an eternal God there forever so that you have a personal beginning instead of an impersonal beginning. And also you have here a complete distinction between making between, the, between this, the biblical teaching, and the abstract concept of modern theology of an upstairs religious truth. This is not an upstairs religious truth. It is not merely that religion is psychologically and sociologically orientated and for to be used as a tool psychologically and sociologically. It is, it is rather that in existence, in the area of being, in what is, there has always been an eternal personal God. An eternal personal God on the level that prior to prior to uh, Genesis 1-1 there was love and there were promises and there was thought and there was will. Before this the Father loved the Son and there were promises made uh, before this. Now then, before this something did exist. Before Genesis 1-1 therefore something did exist. And this was personal and not static. And this is rooted back into the re reality of the existence of the Trinity. <coughs> now, uh, 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 Shaw once said, Shaw once said that he might believe in Christianity if he could get rid of a few foolish things like the Trinity. It's a very short, shawistic kind of a thing to say. Uh, but having said this, I would reverse it. I would be an agnostic still today if there was no Trinity. If there was no Trinity, I would still be an agnostic. Because without the Trinity, there are no answers to the basic question. It wouldn't exist. So therefore, the discussion of the Trinity, the discussion of the Trinity is really crucial. And it is not for nothing that the old theologians did not begin with their systematic theology, for instance, Charles Hodge, with soteriology, but theology proper. And theology proper begins with an ontological Trinity, a Trinity that has always been there trendy that has always been there. Now, if we have in mind what the New Testament has taught, and that is that is that before the creation, before Genesis 1-1, before the foundation of the world, there was love and there were promises and there was thought and there will, then we shouldn't be taken by surprise when in Genesis 1-26 it says, let us make man in our own image. So here I think you have clearly indicated not only that there was love prior to the creation of the world and promises, etc., 
but that there was communication. And after all, if promises were made within the Trinity, we should not be said, we should not take it by surprise that there is communication because promises are communication. Now, I would just add again, you cannot, you can't, you can only go so far in these things because we're dealing with the infinite and our mind does boggle very quickly. But certain things are revealed by God himself and we are expected to understand them up to a certain level. That there was love before the creation of the world and there was communication. There was communication. So the Father makes promises to the Son and we should not be taken by surprise And when we read, when we read, uh, let us make man in our own image. You also have, incidentally, uh, Genesis 3.22, A, which deals with the same thing. And you have Isaiah 6, 8. But the crucial one, I think, comes, and I think it's a very, a very striking thing that it comes at the creation of man. Let us make man <laughs> in our own image. Now, some of the Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, men in grammar have tried to make this the, the plural majesty. Gesenius does this, for example. But I think he fails. I think he fails. I think there's a failure in trying to make this the plural of majesty. I think it's far, it's far easier to read it in the other direction. Uh, there's a real debate, it seems to me, whether the Jews ever did use the plural majesty. It's shown in various references. For instance, in Ezra 4.18, it's shown that, uh, that they understood that the Persian kings did use the plural majesty. But you find, you don't find it in the, it seems to me, in the Jewish usage itself. But for us, of course, the crucial thing is what the scripture has to say. And when we turn to John 1, this becomes very clear. And I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was deliberate on the Holy Spirit to inspire John to begin where the, where Genesis begins. In the beginning. And he, in other words, he picks up exactly the phrase, same phrase, and he adds to it. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And as you know, those of you who have studied this in your Greek, that there is a, a, a great play of, uh, a great play of, uh, of tenses here. But before I would deal with that, I would point out that we know who the Word is. It's always seemed to me that the the esoteric discussion on the word is strange in the light of the way John is written. And that is that you have in the 14th and 15th verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us for grace and truth, leaving out the parenthesis. And then the next verse is John bear witness of him. Well, in the Greek, you did not have paragraphs. You did not have paragraphs. There's no reason for a paragraph. You had it written right along without a break. And so anyone reading it from the original Greek without the paragraph headings and without the verse breaks would read it simply, there was the word and the word was made flesh, etc. And John bare witness of him. And we know to whom John the witness was bearing, John the Baptist was bearing witness. He was bearing to the one we know as Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that it's quite clear, though you can have all kinds of other discussions about the word. Nevertheless, it's quite clear who the personality is that is being referred to in Genesis, in John 1.1. 1, 1, when we read, according to the Greek, the Greek use of the imperfect text in comparison to the Arius, Arius, in the beginning, the word already was, and the word already was with God, and the word already was God, the same was in the beginning with God, all things became, and here you come to an Arius, this is an entirely different thing. He already was, but something new became, 
And it is the word became in Greek, which is interesting because it relates it to our modern discussion of being. So what you find is all things became through him and was not anything made that was made and in him was life, etc. So what you have now is an interplay. You have an imperfect that he already was, the one we know as Jesus Christ already was, before in the beginning. But at a certain point of my word sequence, suddenly the world became. And it's a once for all thing. It was not an imperfect. We are not in a constant creation. There was a creation when the space-time continuum, the cosmos as we know it today, came into existence when it had not existed before. But the person who did the creating had already existed before. The interesting thing is that you pick up the aorist again in the 14th verse, and the word became flesh. In other words, the incarnation was also a once-for-all thing and not a continuing thing in the sense of being, uh, of uh, becoming, rather, instead of being, the modern terminology. The incarnation was not a becoming. The incarnation was a being. It's not an eternal becoming. So what you have is, what you have is then, that he existed always before the beginning, but at a certain point uh, of, of sequence in one case and then history in the other, two things happened once for all. The one was the creation of the cosmos and the other was the incarnation. I think God has dealt very carefully with us in this. The answers are very, very much uh, at our disposal if we will think about them. So, so, so as we come uh, in other portions, but in John 1, 1, in other words, in the beginning, there was, you can use in the beginning, but there was that, there was much that was before in the beginning. Thus, I would take in the beginning as a technical term. I would take in the beginning as a technical term. Incidentally, in Hebrews 1.10, I won't read it, you have the same use of the word in the beginning. So in the beginning, what you have is a technical term of the beginning of the space-time continuum. It is the beginning of the cosmos. It is not an be absolute beginning out of nothing. Because God was already there, which becomes very important in discussion. It was not an absolute beginning out of nothing. So when we speak of creation out of nothing, we're not saying creation out of, out of a situation in which there was nothing before, but the cosmos was entirely new. And incidentally, in brackets, science is proving to us more and more that we don't know what the cosmos is. More and more, we haven't a clue what the cosmos was. When I studied physics, we thought we knew. We thought we could measure it, do all kinds of things to it, and deal with it. Today, the cosmos, we are not sure what makes up the cosmos. But what the Bible emphasizes is before the cosmos, there was something. And what there was, was the, what there was, was the Trinity. What there was, was the Trinity. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 is the same. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Jesus, was all thing, were all things created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible. So you notice that it's not only the seen world that was created, but the unseen world, the world of the spirit. The unseen world were created at the same time. So what you have, what you have is, or in the same way, anyway, it's about, I guess, what I have to say and stop. You can't go further. But if you, at least in the same way, the unseen world was created as well as the seen world. 
whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities of power. And these things in the New Testament usage, these things in the New Testament usage is, are the spirit world, the unseen world. All, through create, all things were created by him and for him. And then this, and he is before all things. And he is before all things. I won't go on to the next step, that slightly different area. But he was before all things. He was before all things. So it says expressly that the one called Christ, and here Paul is making very plain that he's talking about Jesus, was before all things. So before in the beginning, Colossians is insisting, Colossians is insisting that he was. Therefore, Genesis 1-1 is not the absolute beginning. Really, I can't stress that too strongly in dealing with modern men and understanding also the wonder of our heritage. That before this, there was only God. Then comes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he creates ex nihilo. He creates something brand new. He creates something brand new. And it's the heavens, it's the whole cosmos, but it has a personal beginning and love and communication existed prior to the material universe so you have the exact opposite of modern man's view. In other words, Christianity stands implacably opposed to modern man's thinking and Eastern thinking at the crucial point of the beginning. Everything's going to flow out of the beginning. And, uh, and actually, actually, at the very beginning, this is implacably opposed. Now, this turns really very much, this opens up the way very much to modern man's thought and discussion with modern man. Jean-Paul Sartre is quoted as having said that the basic philosophic question is that something is there rather than nothing being there. And this is a profound observation. Why should anything be there? Why should anything exist? This is the real question. Now, this, therefore, as we look around as we see the universe is there. The universe is there. But has it always been there? Now, you must understand, modern man must say in some form, it has always been there. When I was younger, one of the great questions that people always tried to throw at me was, well, do you believe God exists? Yes, well, God exists. Well, how could he exist forever? But really, among really thinking people, I hardly ever receive this question anymore. And there's a reason for that, because modern man has analyzed that something has been there forever. It's only the question of what has been there forever. So for modern man, you begin with a big bang theory with a heavy, heavy molecule. So heavy, as a matter of fact, that all the material in the universe, all the mass, is a better word here, all the mass that exists in the universe was, compass, was in a heavy molecule, probably the size of this room. So you can imagine how heavy it was. This is the theory. And then came the explosion, and now it's moving out in a cycle. And maybe one day it will return again in the cycle, and the universe will collapse. But whether you hold a concept of a, of a collapsing universe or an uncollapsing universe, everybody in modern man's thing has to say that something was there which is intrinsically what is there now and has been there forever. And you begin with the impersonal, the heavy molecule, or the energy particle. So consequently, when people try to say to us and make a, make a joke and say, how could God be there forever? They do not understand, really, the gist of the question. Because something's been there forever. Now, basically, you must understand that there are only a certain number of ways you can begin. They're very, very limited. And the first way you can begin is to say everything came out of nothing. But if you're going to hold the view that everything came out of nothing, then you must hold it without any reservation. 
It must be, it must really be everything came out of nothing. And how would you describe the kind of a nothing you would have to hold if everything came out of nothing? And that is, I would always say, well, you draw a circle on a perfectly clean, clean green board. I won't call it a blackboard. A perfectly clean green board where it has never been used, so it would be without fault and without mark. Uh -huh. And you draw a circle, and everything there, is, there was was within the circle, and there was nothing within the circle. And then you rubbed out the circle, and that would be nothing, nothing. Now, no one holds this here. Theoretically, it is a holdable, but no one holds it because it's nonsense. There's nobody living today who believes that everything that exists came out of nothing, nothing. Nobody. So what you're left with then eventually is just a couple answers, and that is you're either left with an impersonal beginning or a personal beginning. Now some people have tried to hold on to some form of dualism, but this, this usually quickly falls aside with either the personal or the impersonal becoming dominant. So it isn't of the same order, I think, as the other two possibilities of a personal beginning or an impersonal beginning. So now you have so now you have the you have one or the other. And modern man in Eastern thought chooses the impersonal beginning and all the tragedy of modern man comes because he chooses the impersonal beginning. On the other hand, if you have the personal beginning, this tragedy is not there. It is not there. Now, if we choose the impersonal beginning, two areas of basic human thought are unexplained. The first is the external universe. And the dilemma with the existence of the external universe is that it is not a bare existence. It has a form. It has a high degree of complexity. And here remember what I said about Murray Eden using his high-speed computers at MIT and asking what is the possibility of the present complexity of the universe coming forth on the basis of time plus chance and any amount of possible time up to 8 billion years, and the answer being absolute zero. So what you have, what you have is the factor uh, that, what you have is that uh, the universe is there, and the universe is highly complex, and the simple fact is that the impersonal plus time plus chance does not explain the basic problem as Sartre puts it forth as something being there. And especially something being there with form. Because it has a form. It has a form. Very, very, very deliberate, very much has a form. You remember someone, one of the professors asked me to speak a little about Einstein, and I pointed out that at the end of his life, Einstein was fighting the, the, the general scientific establishment because he was insisting that there was an set order in the universe. It was not random. It is not random. So much so, as I pointed out with Einstein, that his theory of relativity begins with the most, with the least relative thing you can imagine, and that is the uniformity of light, uh, the uniform speed of light in a vacuum everywhere in the universe, and that you can be sure before you begin that the laws you find and can propound about the universe will be true everywhere. The most unrelative thing you can imagine. Why do we dare put a man on the moon? Because in reality, we, have, we know that there's an order in the universe which will be true a hundred miles off the surface of the moon as it is here. So we can set a man down within a couple feet. Remarkable thing. But, un, but absolutely impossible if the laws of the universe change to a certain point. So what we find, what we find is then that 
Einstein, at the end of his life, struggling for this. He has no basis for it except a mystical one. He becomes a mystic at the end of his life. But having said this, he is struggling for the fact that there's order in the universe. It's not random. So the first thing that is unexplained by the impersonal plus time plus chance is the, the existence of the universe, point one, and point two, the fact of the order of the universe. You remember perhaps some of the quotations, some of you will remember the quotation I gave of Einstein toward the end of his life, uh, that uh, so far in our observation that the universe is like a well-ordered crossword puzzle. And that in a well-ordered crossword puzzle, you can suggest any word, but only one word will fit. And Einstein is saying what you find in a well-ordered crossword puzzle is what we have found so far in the universe. So now the first thing, the first thing that is not explained on by the basis of the impersonal plus time plus chance is the momentous thing of not explaining the universe and its order. The second thing that's not explained by an impersonal beginning and is explained by a personal beginning is man. Who am I? The basic intellectual question of all intellectual questions is who am I? And then it's related, related, spiraling off from this, reaching out. It's the reaching out of spokes from this. Who am I? And we find a universal mannishness of man. There is a universal mannishness of man. Uh, we would find that Noel Chomsky, Noel Chomsky's basic grammar would emphasize this. As I mentioned, Noel Chomsky of MIT. Noel Chomsky's basic thing is there is something in the human mind that is so distinctive that all grammar must fit into the form of the basic grammar. So Hebrew grammar will be different than Greek. It will be different from English and different from German. But nevertheless, there are certain things of grammar which are fundamental to all men because all men have a mannishness. So he wouldn't use that terminology. Levi-Strauss, uh, the anthropologist of France. Many things were in differ with Levi-Strauss. He would be our enemy. But nevertheless, Levi-Strauss has added a whole new note to the discussion of pointing out that all men everywhere think on the same, think the same way. Very interesting. And it's related in a way, uh, it has a relation to Noel Chomsky's discussion. Now, it isn't that these men therefore become Christians unhappily, but they are saying things which, which are very much on our side. That there is a distinction of man. There is a distinction of man. All men have moral motions. Not emotions. When I first started writing my book, I always had to cross off the E when it came back from the publisher. They made it emotion. I'm not talking about a moral emotion. I'm talking about that all men have motions toward morality. The thing that struck me is perhaps the most unique thing in my uh, original thinking in my own thought in the last few years, a couple years ago, was the fact uh, that all men make works of art. And no non-man makes a work of art. No non-man ever makes a work of art. But you never find, you never find man anywhere who does not make a work of art. So when we spill our millions and millions of dollars for art museums, I'm convinced it's not only for aesthetic things, but we find ourselves in these things. There is a relationship. And no matter where you go, I've been interested in one period in my life in Chinese bronzes of long, long ago. Well, they were very different from our, from myself, and yet at the same time they were they were who I am because I had a mannishness connected with them. Very strikingly, pre-Columbian silver before Columbus came to America, pre-Columbian silver it has a mark of mannishness upon it. So you find that there is such a thing as the mannishness of men. 
And there is a there is a real difference between man and non-man. One can think of other areas, but this thing of art is very striking. Just like to say that in parenthesis that modern anthropology was set on its nose about five or six years ago, when it, it, it acknowledged that Neanderthal man at 40,000 BC, according to their own dating, buried the dead in flower petals. Animals do not bury their dead in flower petals. And the whole thinking was, was completely upended. It was completely upended. And it changed the whole attitude of anthropology toward Neanderthal men. Here you have something that is a mark of mannishness. If you go to the cave paintings, much closer to us than 40,000 years, I don't know if the dates are right or not, um, immaterial at this point, uh, but much closer to us in the cave paintings, the north of Spain and the south of France, these things mark man as seeing himself as different from non-man in a highly complicated, sophisticated way. So what you find is then, all men are different from non-man, but you must see that the impersonal plus time plus chance, specifically and above all else, gives no answer to the fact of why man is different from non-man. Man stands as the great general revelation that condemns men who take the impersonal beginning. You can express it this way. It condemns them because they cannot explain the difference of that which they know best, namely man himself. So they know this better than anything else because it's closer to their observation and their own system does not explain, their own system does not explain themselves, let alone anything else. So therefore, therefore, there are two things that stand in general revelation as a condemnation upon the impersonal beginning, and that is the universe's existence and its form, and specifically what I call the mannishness of man, what I call the mannishness of man. The distinction between man and non-man, personality, these various, and you speak of it as various ways. So now the Judistic Christian position has the opposite answer from the impersonal beginning. It is a personal beginning in which the Trinity has existed before the creation of the world. So you cannot, you, nobody takes the beginning, nobody takes the position of a beginning out of nothing, nothing, so eventually you choose either an impersonal dominance or a personal dominance. And if you choose an impersonal dominance where the Eastern religions live and where modern man specifically lives, you have no answer for the two crucial points of the universe that exists and the mannishness of man. And in doing this, there's a cultural factor. And that is, it is upon the dignity of man and the meaningfulness of man, etc., that our culture has been built. But this is upon the Christian basis. So therefore, I would insist that idealistic Marxianism is a Christian heresy. Because if Marxianism was built on its own philosophic base of a total final materialism and impersonality, there would be no dignity of man. And yet at the same time, idealistic communism traps the young always at the point of an emphasis upon a value of the individual. They don't practice it when they have power. I think that's a difference. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the net of how you catch young people, how young people are caught uh, for idealistic communism. But I think the point upon which they catch men is a Christian heresy. Because it's only the Christian personal beginning on the high order of Trinity that gives the dignity of man. You come in a circle and Skinner says we're beyond the dignity of man. It's a very interesting factor. So what we have then is a, from the Christian cosmogamy is a personal beginning on the high order of Trinity. So 
therefore, in, before in the beginning, the personal had always been there. The personal had always been there. Something was there before the creation of the space-time continuum. And that something was the highest order possible of personality, and it was the order of love and communication. And if there's anything modern man weeps for, it is to find a meaning to love and a meaning of communication. And he's alienated from the universe. The mark of modern man is his alienation from the final universe as he sees the universe, because he sees the universe as finally impersonal, and he has aspirations of personality, so he is alienated from the universe. Here Cometti's drawings, paintings, and, and sculpture is a great statement of this. Modern man's alienation from the impersonal universe. He is completely alienated. But in the biblical viewpoint, he is not alienated from what has always been, because what has always been is impersonal. Now, if you would take, uh, take this room, and you say, this is the only universe that exists. There is no other universe. Uh, and it is made up of, the walls are solids, and the floor and the ceilings are solid, and then it was filled with a liquid up to the ceiling. And fish, fish swam in the, in the liquid. The fish would be, would not be alienated from their basic environment because a fish can swim in liquid. But if, on the other hand, by blind chance, the way the evolutionist says, the, that the fish develop lungs, they wouldn't be higher, they'd be lower because they would drown. Because they'd be alienated from their final environment. But now what we must understand is that modern man is alienated cosmically from his final environment. Modern man is drowning. Because his final environment is impersonal and he has personal aspirations and his personal aspirations condemn him because he is being made in the image of God and rejecting this. He still has his personal aspirations and his personal aspira aspirations condemn him because his personal, personal aspirations are completely, finally, cosmically alienated from what has always been and what is. But it's not so with a Christian. What has always been is a personal God. What has always been is a personal God. And insofar as what has always been is a personal God, therefore man is not alienated. Don't you see how this question of beginnings is so crucial? So if you begin with the impersonal beginning, you go on mathem with mathematical precision to the place of the, the despair of modern man, cosmically alienated from what is. What is. If you begin with a Christian position, your highest motions of the, in the mannishness of man are not alienated from what has always been, because there's always been personality on the high order of Trinity, and there's always been love and communication from before the creation of the world. I want to stop. Time to clear. I'll go on and pick this up and go on. In this point.